Hello everyone, my name is Marcin Soha. I am a research fellow in the Center of Asian Affairs at the University of Łódź, which is a university-based think tank monitoring the situation in Asia-Pacific. Let me welcome you to my next podcast on Japanese domestic and foreign policy. Today I will be talking about the possible legacy of Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. I decided to do this podcast because the public opinion polls show that the support for Prime Minister Abe is continuously falling, and right now it dropped to around 29%. Prime ministers suffered mostly from the poor handling of the coronavirus epidemic, and we can hear many voices that the ruling coalition will have to look for a new leader soon. In May, we could also observe some interesting changes in Japan's foreign policy. It seems that the Abe administration has finally realized that there is no hope of getting the Kuril Islands back from Russia through diplomatic dialogue. That's why I wanted to go through the most important foreign policy directions pursued during the second Abe administration and look for the ones which ended in success. Let's start with a few pieces of information about Prime Minister Abe himself. We should take into account that he is the longest serving Prime Minister in Japanese history and has been in the post for more than eight years, which in itself is quite an achievement. Generally, if we take a look at the situation in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, we will find that there were not many prime ministers serving for more than two years. It has been identified as one of the major problems in Japan's foreign policy. How can we have a stable, predictable foreign policy if prime ministers change every two years or sometimes even every year? Thanks to several institutional and political changes, Japanese prime minister received specific tools which gave him more control over his cabinet and allowed him to stay longer in office. We can certainly say that Prime Minister Abe learned how to use these tools, which helped him stay in power for such a long period. The second thing we should know is that Abe Shinzo have always been very much interested in foreign policy. His grandfather, Kishinobosuke, was the prime minister himself, and his father, Abe Shintaro, served as a minister of foreign affairs. Therefore, we can say that Prime Minister Abe inherited certain areas of interest. In fact, paying too much attention to foreign policy was one of the reasons Abe lost power during his first term in office in 2007. His political opponents accused him of having no interest in solving domestic and economic problems. During his second administration, uh, during his second term, Abe has learned his lesson and presented an economic revitalization strategy called Abenomics as a central initiative of his cabinet. Abenomics was supposed to end a long period of economic stagnation and deflation in the country. Unfortunately, the grand financial strategy did not bring the desired results. Following a significant economic slump caused by the coronavirus epidemic, Japan was left in the state of economic recession. This certainly was not the result that the prime minister had hoped for. Placing uh, importance on Abenomics does not mean that Prime Minister Abe became disinterested with foreign policy, just the opposite. From the beginning of his second term, he showed a lot of effort on multiple diplomatic fronts. Uh, today, I would like to take a look at different foreign policy directions and evaluate the accomplishments of the Japanese government at each of those. The most crucial foreign policy direction is, of course, a policy towards the United States, which are Japan's greatest ally. One of the most prominent problems on that front was Washington's decision to leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Japanese government decided to go on with the initiative without the United States, which in the end was 
evaluated as a right decision. The other clashing moments uh, came after President Donald Trump threatened to introduce tariffs on Japanese steel and cars. In the end, Japan was pressured into signing a bilateral trade agreement with the United States, which opened the Japanese market for imports of American beef and agricultural products. Although the deal was called a major success by the Trump administration, the tariffs and concessions were similar to those negotiated before in the TPP. The cornerstone of relations with the United States is Security Pact, which allows Washington to station troops on Japanese territory. Although President Trump tried to force Japan to accept higher costs of maintaining the U.S. bases, so far the Japanese government managed to prevent that from happening. At this moment, we can observe that Prime Minister Abe managed to maintain a good personal relationship with, Prime, with President Trump. But those good relations come with a price. Uh, during the second Abe administration, we could see an increase in purchases of the American gas, arms and other goods, which places Japan in the position of a client of the United States. Another goal uh, set by the Prime Minister Abe himself was sorting out relations with South Korea, which were gridlocked by the issue of comfort women and abuses committed during Japan's occupation. In 2015, Japan and South Korea signed the comfort women deal, which was seen as a new opening in the relations between Tokyo and Seoul. Japan promised to create a compensation fund and acknowledge the role Japanese wartime military authorities played in enslaving Korean women. In return for apologies made by the Japanese Prime Minister, the Korean government agreed to finally and irreversibly resolve the comfort women issue. The deal was presented in Japan as a major diplomatic success. Unfortunately, after the Korean President Park Geun-hye had been ousted from office in March 2017, the comfort women issue uh, once again became a tool of gathering support for the next Korean administration. The next uh, president, uh, Moon Jae-in, openly opposed the agreement, stating that comfort women issue was a crime against humanity. Very quickly, bilateral relations soured and new areas of conflict emerged. In 2018, we could observe the growing dispute between the ministries of defense after a radar lock-on incident involving a Japanese aircraft and a South Korean vessel. The same year, South Korean Supreme Court ordered Japanese companies to pay compensation for forced wartime labor, which was opposed by the Japanese government. In mid-2019, we could see a start of a new open trade war between the two countries, which resulted in the boycott of Japanese goods in Korea and removing South Korea from the whitelist of trusted trade partners in Japan. Summing up, relations between Tokyo and Seoul are at their lowest points in a very long time, and both countries cannot cooperate on crucial matters without the intervention of Washington. Another vital diplomatic area is North Korea. When the United States and South Korea launched the latest denuclearization dialogue with Kim Jong-un, the Japanese government had to respond to the threat of being left out of the negotiations table. The main unresolved issue for Japan is the fate of Japanese citizens kidnapped by the North Korean agents in 1970s and 1980s. Seeing that he cannot count on the support of the United States nor the South Korean government, Prime Minister Abe made direct attempts to open a dialogue with North Korea. Although during his first term in office, Abe showed that he was able to establish contact with Pyongyang through unofficial channels, this time his call, calls were left without a response and so far turned out to be a fiasco. Next on our list is China. 
Abe Shinzo made some noteworthy attempts to repair, to repair relations with Beijing, which were suffering since the boat collision incident of 2010 and dispute over the Senkaku Islands in 2012. Diplomatic efforts resulted in organizing Abe's visit to Beijing in 2018 to mark the 40th anniversary of Treaty of Peace and Friendship between the two nations. The summit was hailed as the new opening in Japan-China relations and was followed by a number of high-level business meetings. Unfortunately, the reciprocal visit of Xi Jinping in Japan, which had been planned for April 2020, was cancelled because of the coronavirus epidemic. Following that came the necessity to postpone the Tokyo Olympics, which fueled the anti-Chinese sentiments in Japan. Many Japanese officials joined the United States government in accusing Beijing of concealing information about the early stages of coronavirus infection. The Minister of Finance, Asotara, openly criticized China and the World Health Organization for excluding Taiwan. He claimed that WHO should change its name to China's Health Organization. Members of the government, including the Prime Minister Abe, have been openly criticizing Beijing for its handling of the Hong Kong protests. Japan has also joined the move led by the Australian government to launch an independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus epidemic. Apart from accusations and international criticism, the Japanese government is planning significant changes in its trade policy. As a part of the coronavirus economic package, Prime Minister Abe proposed measures which would end Japan's over-reliance on China. The goal of the new strategy is creating the new supply chains and bringing the manufacturing of high-end products back to Japan. This move, which can be interpreted as a policy of shifting away from China, indicates that we should not expect a breakthrough in bilateral relations anytime soon. The biggest failure of Abe's foreign policy so far is the lack of progress in the talks on the territorial dispute with Russia. Resolving the territorial dispute was one of the priorities of the current cabinet. Between 2013 and 2019, Abe visited Russia 11 times. Japanese government launched an economic cooperation initiative promoting investment in the Russian Far East. Government officials refrained from criticizing Russia after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the assassination of Sergei Skripal in Great Britain in 2018. Although the Japanese government was forced to impose economic sanctions on Moscow in 2014, it transferred significant funds to Russian companies through various local investment initiatives. Despite the constant criticism coming from the Japanese opposition parties, which claim that Japan-Russia cooperation is one-sided and does not guarantee any diplomatic success, Prime Minister Abe was continuing on his path of building friendly relations with President Vladimir Putin. In November 2018, both leaders agreed to continue peace treaty talks based on the 1956 Joint Declaration, which promised to return two smaller Kuril Islands Habamai and Shikutan to Japan. Unfortunately, following the strong domestic opposition, the talks were eventually stalled by Russia. When in June 2019, President Vladimir Putin refused to accelerate negotiations on territorial disputes, it became clear that Russian government had never had real intentions of returning any territories to Japan, and the dialogue was aimed at gaining as many economic benefits as possible. Japan's diplomatic blue book published in May 2020 claims that the Kuril Islands, referred to as Northern Territories, are Japan's sovereign territory. This may be a sign of toughening stance towards Moscow. It can also mean the end of hopes for resolving the territorial dispute through diplomatic dialogue with Russia. 
with falling public support and no potential accomplishments in foreign policy on the horizon, we should expect that the legacy of Prime Minister Abe Shinzo will not be as impressive as we could have hoped. It is too early to predict the end of Abe Shinzo's administration, but looking at the events so far, one cannot find much hope for a spectacular turnaround. The second term of Abe Shinzo as a prime minister has clearly shown that international relations are very unpredictable. It has also shown that in many situations, diplomats have very little control over the outcome of political dialogue. Despite concentrated efforts on many diplomatic fronts, the government have not managed to achieve a breakthrough in any of the vital policy directions. We can also ask what lesson can we learn from Abbas failures? Is the lack of success a result of some misguided foreign policy strategy or insufficient diplomatic effort? Can we blame the Japanese prime minister or members of the government for the outcome of those diplomatic efforts? In my, in my opinion, no. It is definitely not the lesson on missed opportunities or unrealized potential of Japanese diplomacy. It's rather a lesson on limitations of diplomatic outreach and the necessity of scaling down one's expectations and waiting for the right moments to come. This lesson also teaches us that sometimes several years of diplomatic dialogue may not be enough to solve issues which have been a burden on bilateral relations since the first half of the 20th century. That's all for today. Thank you very much for listening and hope to hear from you in the comment sections. Have a nice day and goodbye.